what would you guess, I mean, just look at me, what would you guess was my first job in college? You'll never guess. I was, for one month, a door-to-door vacuum salesman. It didn't last long. I was terrible at it. In one month, I sold two vacuums, and one was to a relative. So it just didn't go well. Part of the problem is I, I didn't believe in the product. No, the vacuum was good. I just don't vacuum. Because if you can't see the dirt, it doesn't exist. And my apologies to all you germaphobes that just had a shiver run down your spine. My first job after college was, uh, I was a pastor at a small church in San Antonio, Texas. And I, I followed a guy that made house calls like door to door, checking up on members every day, made a ton of them. And I tried to follow in his footsteps. So I'm going door to door again, but this time I loved it. Why? Well, partly because I believed in the product more. But here's the, big, here's the big issue. When I was selling vacuums, I was just doing it for the money. I wanted someone, I knocked on their door, I wanted something from them. When I knocked on doors in ministry, I wanted something for them. And that is one of the major differences between those who are happy with their work and those who aren't. Now, I don't know what you do for a living. Uh, maybe you're a vacuum salesman. Or maybe a plumber or an architect or a nurse. When you want something for your clients, for the people that you're serving, it makes all the difference in your happiness and in your effectiveness. Now, we, the reason I'm bringing this up is because we want to reach the entire valley for Jesus Christ. It's a big, audacious vision we have at this church. We are, listen, we are never going to do that through the weekend on our campuses. Never. I don't care how many campuses we establish. I don't care how many people attend. Right now, we are reaching a grand total of 0.6% of the market share of this valley, and that is not enough. We need to reach the entire valley. How is that going to happen? It is going to happen when all the people who call CCB home see their work as worship and their mission as ministry. I don't know if you've ever thought about going into ministry or what you think about thinking about going into ministry. A lot of folks, they, you know, they think about ministry as like if God called me to do ministry, he would like send me an email, I guess. I don't know. Just tell me, you know, here's how you preach or here's how you teach or here's how you counsel. Or maybe you would come in a, in a DM. God just says, this is what I want you to do. But listen, when you go to God right now, if you went to God and said, God, what do you want me to do for you? I want to, I want to do ministry. What do you want me to do? His answer to you would be the same as a parent's answer to a child. What, what do I want you to do? Whatever. Like seriously, whatever. Whatever you do, do that for Jesus. That is a direct quote from our verse of the day. Colossians chapter 3. We've been in this study for several weeks. Uh, uh, the book of Colossians. Chapter 3 verse 17. Listen to this. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's how you turn your work into worship and your mission into ministry. All of you, in God's eyes, all of you are intended to be pastors where you work. God wants you to make Jesus famous where you land every day. Worship is not what you do on the weekend. It's what you do Monday through Friday. 
how are we going to get there? Well, I want to tell you a couple stories of what it could look like for you. And last week I met a guy after church and just asked him about his life and what he did for a living. He and his team work with teens that have been kicked out of high school. Now, I expected him to say, man, these teens, they're just troublemakers. He didn't. He said, they're awesome. I expected him to say that the parents were disengaged. He didn't. He said, they're disadvantaged. I expected him to say that the school system is broken. He didn't. He said, it needs augmented by the service we provide. And it might not surprise you that he and his team are almost all followers of Jesus Christ. And when they see these kids, they see opportunities to put them on a different trajectory for Jesus, and they are good at it. That's what ministry at work looks like. I met with another guy this week. His job is to create schools. Like, I didn't even know what that meant. What he said, well, I, I create schools. I make schools, charter schools, Christian schools, private schools, homeschools, and I provide curriculum for them. He and his three partners have a million students in their schools. Like, it's a big deal. And what God is doing in his heart right now is he has success, and he wants to move to significance by doing what he does best and providing faith-based curriculums to those schools that want to leverage it. He's using his influence, his resources, his skills to make Jesus famous where he works. That's what it looks like for you, whether you're a nurse, or maybe you're retired, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. When you do whatever you do in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that's when your work becomes worship. Imagine with me for a moment what would happen in our city if the 32,000 people, that's our average attendance right now per week, 32,000 people engage where they work with the worship of Jesus on their minds, and they don't want something from the people they work with, they want something for them. What a change agent we would be as the body of Christ in this city. So, what's keeping us from doing that? Because you and I both know, whether you're watching on campus or looking at it online, you and I both know the vast majority of Christians do not see their work as a ministry. Well, I, I suppose there's a number of barriers. But I want to talk about the one barrier today that is keeping most people from worshiping through work. This is the barrier that Paul laid out. I'm going to back up from chapter 3, verse 17 to chapter 2, verse 16. And we're just going to take a running start and land on 317 again at the end of the message. You with me? Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, here it is, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, those are all Jewish barometers of spirituality. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, if you were to transport back in time to the author of this book, his name is Paul, he's an apostle, and you say, Paul, well, you're talking about these Jewish barometers of spirituality. What makes a good Jew a good Jew? You know what Paul would say to you? Three things, diet, day, and dress. And that's how a good Jew knew he's a good Jew. The, the day you worship, the food you ate, and how you, how you dressed. 
So for diet, you probably recognize that the Jews don't eat pork, right? So no bacon. Oy vey. They also didn't eat lobster, crab, or shrimp. There were these very specific rules about what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. Aren't you glad that you're a Christian and not a Jew? Bacon. <laughs> Except I grew up in a church that did have rules. Not about bacon, but about nicotine. Like, you don't, you're not supposed to smoke. And actually, they, they said this, like, if you smoke, you could go to hell. And if you don't go to hell, it'll smell like you've been there. <laughs> and the justification for this rule was, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is a misunderstanding of the Bible. This, like my own body, that's not the temple of the Holy Spirit. This, us, the church, that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But even so, they said, your body is like sacred, so don't defile it with nicotine. So there's a prohibition against cigarettes, but not against all-you-can-eat buffets. I'm just saying, there were some full gospel people in my church. There's this prohibition against alcohol, but not against soda or, or pop. Is that really less bad for you? There's this hypocrisy, and this is maybe not your church, but this is the church that I grew up in. Diet and also the day. Now, for the Jews, the day was Saturday or Sabbath. And if you go to Israel today and try to get on an elevator on the Sabbath, sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, the elevators, this is ridiculous, they, all, they open on every floor automatically. Why? Well, because the Bible says don't work on the Sabbath, which is a good idea. And they interpret work as pushing a button on an elevator. I mean, come on. Aren't you glad that as a Christian, you don't have those kind of rules about a day? Except that I grew up in a church that kind of did. We were supposed to go to church on the Lord's day. I mean, I think all days are the Lord's day, but we called it Sunday, the Lord's day. And we seriously, we judged each other based on how many times you went to church on Sunday. Now, if you're an average Christian, I mean, just, just, you're just average. You go and worship every week. You need to be there every week or something's wrong with you. But if you're really a good Christian, not average, but good, you go to church an hour early for something we called Sunday school. And we study the Bible for an hour, and then we worship for an hour, or an hour 15, or an hour 30. It was brutal. It was just, uh. And then... If you're a super saint, but only if you're a super saint, this is for the elite, not for average, not even for good. You come back on Sunday night. Sunday nights were awful. It was bad. Like only 10% of people came. The singing was bad. The preaching was bad. It was just bad. Why? I hated Sunday nights. So why did we go to Sunday night church when we hated it? Because we didn't want to be judged by people that we didn't even like. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Some of you grew up in a church like that. If you didn't, God bless you. But we had diet, we had day, and we had dress. There's certain ways you dress in church, right? You wore your Sunday best. And some of you came to CCV from a church like that, and we don't have a dress code, and first time you walk in, you just go, are these people even saved? We're not going to put artificial rules to impose on something that doesn't actually make you righteous. 
In the church I grew up in, they had a prohibition against tattoos, but you could have a mullet. I'm just saying, if you ask me which leaves the more permanent scar, it's the mullet. We have these rules about what makes you a good Christian, and oddly, they're the same rules that the Jews had of what made good Jews. And you can criticize them for diet, day, and dress, but we have our own set of rules, and we submit to the judgment of people that are just, they're not any more righteous than you. They just follow different rules than you do. So I want to ask you a question. This is a question of the day, and we all need to answer it. Are you trying to meet the expectations of insiders or the needs of outsiders? You can't do both at the same time. You think you can. Like, I'll follow the rules and be impressive to people inside and then try to go meet the needs of people outside. You can't. You don't have that much energy or time or space. Guess which Jesus wants you to focus on? The needs of outsiders, not the expectations of insiders. Now look, I, I get it. Rules are important because we want to live a life that represents Christ well. But do you really think outsiders are looking at you going, well, they didn't dress up enough for church, so I'm not going to church. Like I'm, I'm going to go to hell. Do you really think that people are looking at you and say, well, he doesn't smoke or he doesn't drink, so wow, I'm going to follow Jesus because of that. Never has that ever happened. I, like, I get it. There's reasons for rules because you want to represent Christ well, but the rules that we have don't actually promote Jesus with outsiders. They just promote you with insiders. And the bad part of rules is they can do a couple of really nasty things. Here's one. The right rules repel outsiders. They don't attract them. In fact, if you go back into the biblical time, the reason that they had dietary restrictions, that the Jews didn't eat pork, is this. You're going to think I'm making this up. This is actually why. It wasn't for health. Because there's nothing unhealthy about eating pork. It's the other white meat. The reason that they didn't eat pork is because Romans ate pork. And if you don't eat pork, then you're never going to have a Roman come to your table. And if you don't have a Roman come to your table, then your daughter won't fall in love with the Roman. And if your daughter doesn't fall in love with the Roman, then your grandchildren won't be little baby pagans running around. It's actually deliberate. And the church I grew up in had these rules to keep the wrong people out. And that makes God furious. The second thing that rules do, and this is just really bad, the right rules can conceal a bad heart through good behavior. And Paul just goes off on these people who are trying to impose their judgmental rules on you. Listen to what he says in verse 18. It's rough. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen and are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, which is Christ. Here's what I know. When you focus on yourself, you cannot see Jesus. And most of these legalistic rules that we try to measure our spirituality with, most of those rules are not about promoting Jesus. They're about promoting you.
And here's the worst part of the rules. The right rules don't make you righteous. It's kind of a biblical word, righteous. It means to, to live appropriately, to live rightly. And rules, they, just, they don't have the capacity to make you righteous. And Paul gives an argument in verse 20 that the first time I actually really read it, it just blew my mind because it was so counterintuitive. So see what you think. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Question, what are worldly rules? Had you asked me when I was growing up in the church, what are the worldly rules? I would have said, well, the worldly rules are, uh, it's expensive, but you're worth it. If it feels good, it can't be wrong. It do your own thing. You do you, boo. Those are the rules of the world. No, no. Here's the rules of the world. Listen, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's exactly what we were saying in the church. Don't handle that. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. That's bad. It's bad for you. You can't be a good Christian if you touch, taste, and handle those things. He goes on. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But listen, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The right rules don't work to make you righteous. I want to tell you a story about that. I hesitate to tell you the story because I don't want you to take the story wrong. This is one of those stories that the people who need to hear it most probably won't. And the people who don't need to hear it may take it to heart too much. But here's the story, true story. In my first ministry, 23 years old, there's a guy named Gene. Now, Gene didn't go to our church because he didn't go to any church because he was too good for every church. He was one of those judgmental, like, hypocrites. And I was sitting at camp next to a veteran pastor in the city named Phil. I love Phil. And up walks Gene. And you could just see, like, from 30 yards away, he's got an agenda, and he's coming up to us. And as he comes up to Phil, he said, Phil, did you get my letter? Another one of those judgmental letters. And this is what Phil said. I'm not advocating what Phil said. I'm just telling what Phil said. Gene, you're an idiot. I don't talk to idiots, go away. And Gene was so offended. He like started in, you can't say that. And Phil just repeated, Gene, you're an idiot. I don't talk to idiots, go away. And like Gene was all in a huff and thought he was kidding or something. So he tried a third time and Phil said, the third time, seriously, I don't talk to idiots, go away. And so Gene did. I smiled. Now, it's never appropriate to call another person an idiot. The biblical word is fool. <laughs> and there are some fools that need to be informed of the fact. Now, here's my concern with this story. Some of you are going to be offended because, you know, calling someone an idiot or a fool, a fool, even though the Bible clearly does. And the people who are offended may actually be a fool. There's others of you that are going, yeah, we like Phil. Phil is awesome. Uh, you might be a fool too. And yet the person is going, I wonder if, I wonder if I've done that. I, I wonder if I've offended people. I wonder if I've judged people. You're probably taking it heart too much. There's a risk in this story, but I'm going to tell you why it's worth the risk to me to tell you this story. Because of Sierra. 
Sierra is a real person who attends CCV, and she had this experience like so many of you had of trying to, trying to live up to other people's expectations. And she found herself judged, and it pushed her out of the church and into the world. And just as she had submitted to the judgment of people in the church, when she left the church, she submitted to the judgment of people outside the church, and that hurt even worse. I want you to hear Sierra's story. Really listen. I was raised in a Christian home with awesome Christian parents that just loved me um, in such a good way. Around the time I was graduating from high school, I felt a really big call on my heart to go into ministry, so I went to Bible college. And I learned a ton during that time. It was, it was a really great experience to get to know God more on a deeper level and the Bible. But unfortunately, there was a lot of just like toxic relationships and um, honestly behaviors that kind of took place. And that was super damaging for me especially because it was really unexpected. Everyone that I ever knew that was a Christian was my family and was awesome. And then to be around Christians that the whole time you're talking to them, you just, you know they're just judging you. And you know that every word that you say um, is getting kind of like criticized. I walked away from that experience really confused, really confused about um, if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't want any part of that. The bummer with legalism is that there is truth in it. We're called to live a Christian lifestyle that there are certain morals with that and like it's good to hold each other accountable. So there's enough truth in it to where legalism gets really hard because you, you know, you want to hold each other to that standard, but at the same time, like we're not better than one another. And so I decided to, to not really pursue the church anymore. Um, me and God wrestled through a lot of things. Um, but I knew, I always knew that he was real. I'll, and he never, I never walked away from the Lord. Uh, we, he, he's, he's, he's my Jesus, you know, it's like, I couldn't give up on him, but I definitely gave up on Christians. Um, I gave up on the, the organized church. And for probably five years, I'd say, I didn't really associate with it. Um, I didn't want to. I got on, my like soapbox of like, I can do this on my own and I don't need other Christians. And then to watch your heart start to drift away from that like first love in a sense, you know, it's humbling. Cause you're like, I didn't ever think, I never thought that I'd be this person. In this world, like one of two things is gonna have control over your heart. Either it's gonna be Jesus or it's gonna be the world. And the hurt that comes with the world owning your heart is, for me, so, so much more painful than the hurt that comes with the church, you know, maybe messing up or maybe being judgmental. You know, everybody has a different story and everything, but for me, I think God was really saying, like, hey, you need to surround yourself with Christian community again. When you're isolated, 
Um, that's such an unhealthy place to be. I definitely, over the past couple years, have really tried to plug into CCB and I've met some really awesome people that have made the transition easier. Um, I think that coming back to church can be super scary because for me at least, I, I didn't feel like a Christian anymore. I, I didn't feel like I knew how to be. And so going to church kind of felt fake, but then like CCV is a place that I feel like doesn't make you feel like you have to be at any certain spot to, to feel like you belong there. It's just crazy how God works because now I'm serving in the church again and it's just been really great to kind of establish that Christian community again and really find my identity as a Christian and with other believers um, and start to trust other Christians has been awesome. Sierra said something that really struck me, that you'll either give your heart uh, to Jesus or you'll give your heart to the world. And when you give your heart to Jesus, you're in the church, you can get hurt, you, you, you can. But that's nothing compared to the hurt of giving your heart to the world. And so I just, I just wanna say to you, if, if you're a Sierra out there and maybe, maybe you've had this wilderness wandering that you're in the church and you kind of deconstructed your faith because how you were treated or how you were judged. I just want to tell you, we don't want to do that here. And I can't promise that you'll never be judged by any Christian at CCV, but that's not our heart. And we're not going to have dress codes and we're not going to have silly rules that this is how you measure your spirituality by impressing other insiders. We don't play that game here. I just want to invite you to come back home because there is a place for you here. And more importantly, there's a place for you at work. And as you worship at work by ministering to people, not wanting something from them, but wanting something for them, then together we can reach this entire valley for Jesus Christ. And so here's a simple rule about rules. You ready? When Christ rules, rules don't. You make Jesus Lord and no rules are gonna be imposed upon you. In fact, you'll just open the door and be free to live a life that honors God. Now, do we want to live a life that honors God? Yes. Are we saying it's okay to go out and get drunk and sleep around? No, absolutely not. But not because getting drunk will lower you on the totem pole of some Christian scale of righteousness. But because when you go out and get drunk and when you go out and sleep around, it damages the reputation of Christ and it damages what you can do for another person. You know this, you, you're smart people, you know this. Rules don't make you righteous, love does. Rules aren't gonna change your behavior really, not your heart, but relationships will change your behavior. I want to give a, a, it's kind of a stupid illustration, but it's, it's true and it's autobiographical. Because I am male, I am prone to selfishness. Thought I would get an amen from some women, but okay. <laughs> Dudes are just like, like we, we're prone to selfishness. I don't want to be a selfish person, so how do I get over selfishness? Well, one of the best things I ever did was get married because it put a dent in my selfishness. 
When you fall in love with a person, and I, like, I want to be her hero, so it makes me serve her more than serve my own needs. It, put it, and it didn't solve the problem, but it put a dent in my selfishness. You know what really damaged my selfishness? Way more than marriage. Having kids. Because I love my kids more than anything in the world. And they were vulnerable. They needed me. And when you are needed, that will overwhelm your selfishness. It is relationships, not rules, that lead to righteousness. So listen to what Paul says in chapter 3. Because we're not saying you shouldn't live at all a righteous life. Listen to how strongly he puts this. Put to death. This is a strong word. It means to assassinate, to slay completely. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now that sounds like good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone preaching until you realize the context of this passage. Why does the wrath of God come against these two things? All that Paul's listed fall under two categories, sexual immorality and greed. Sexual immorality and greed. Why is God so against sexual immorality and greed? It's not because he wants you to follow some rules to prove your righteousness. It's because when you are, when you are using someone else for sexual gratification, you don't want something for them, you want something from them. And when you're using someone to get money, you don't want something for them. You want something or something from them. You want something for them. When, when you really focus on the needs of outsiders rather than the rules of insiders, all of this other stuff just goes away. You can kill it because there's a greater need. Paul's going to mention one other category. So I want to challenge you with this. Sexual immorality hurts other people. Greed hurts other people, and the language you use hurts other people. I'm not talking about four-letter words. I'm talking about gossip and slander, what Paul says in verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And the picture that Paul is painting here is that you are taking off the old garb and putting on Christ as a new garment. And, and in Paul's world, that was even thicker than ours because your dress indicated your occupation. So if you're a farmer, you dress like a farmer. If you're a soldier, you dress like a soldier. Let me ask you, are you dressed like a Christian? Have you put on Christ? Because it's the relationship with him through which you'll have a relationship with others that will transform your life into the kind of life that really will honor Christ. L listen to what he says about putting on Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I, I apologize. Let me go back to verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. That's how you turn your work into worship. You got someone at work that's offended you? Forgive them as Christ forgave you. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. When you put on Christ, that changes your relationship with others. And then you can turn your work into worship, your mission into ministry. Okay, practically, how does that happen? Because I, I don't know about you, I need help doing that. Practically, here it is. In verse 15 and 16, and we're, we're almost back to 317, where we started. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. That's part of what we do on the weekend worship, right? We get together, we open up the word, and we talk through scriptures and think about how to be people that will honor Jesus. Through wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That's the other thing we do on the way. We sing together, so we're saying the same thing out loud about God. Why do we do this? Not because this is our ministry. This is our huddle for ministry on Monday. We don't gather together on the weekend so that we can be good people and check a box. We gather together so that we can be inspired and instructed and encouraged and empowered to do what God has called you to do tomorrow and the next day, Monday through Friday. This is your ministry for God so that together we can reach the entire valley for Jesus Christ. This is my challenge for you. Your ministry is where you work. It's where you play. It's where you sleep with your family in your neighborhoods. If we all got together and just decided, I'm going like, to be a pastor where I live, work, and play, what a difference we could make for Jesus Christ. Now, here's my challenge. Because I know that right now it's hot. Like hot. It's summertime. That's a hibernation season around here. Someone asked me last week, why don't we preach on hell more? Look, you don't have to convince people of hell when you live in it. And it's easy during these months to back away from church. But your work doesn't change. People still need you at work, and so you still need the huddle on the weekends so that you can make Jesus famous Monday through Friday where you work. So here's my challenge. It's super simple. I want to encourage everyone to be at CCV every week when you're in town and online when you're on vacation. Every week from now until it's under 80 degrees when you get up in the morning. <laughs> For some of you, that'll be a stretch because you typically come once a month or maybe twice a month. I would just encourage you, maybe the reason that you're not as effective at work in your ministry is because you're abandoning the body and not getting the fuel that you need to fill your ministry tank. And if you do that, if you commit to the body of Christ, here's what will happen. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you can do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of the need for the body of Christ, not because this is our ministry, but because we need the fuel for ministry from the word of God, from the inspiration of singing, from the fellowship of the body of Christ. Lord, would you help us commit to being together so that we can go into the world and share the love of Christ. We pray in his name, amen.
All right, let's go out and make Jesus famous.